and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Very excited to have with me State Senator Liz Kruger. She's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, which holds budget oversight and other important hearings. And she represents the 28th district in the state Senate, which includes parts of Midtown Manhattan and a large section of the east side of Manhattan. It's got some zigs and zags, but it goes from roughly Union Square up to 96th Street on the east side. And uh, State Senator Kruger, I believe, is about to hit a milestone of 20 years in the state Senate. Is that correct, Senator? Yes, February will be the 20-year mark. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, congratulations. Coming up coming up soon. I saw that uh, getting ready for this discussion. So uh, we'll, get to, we'll get to our conversation with Senator Kruger in just one second. Uh, if you are looking for any reporting on New York City and state politics, start with us at GothamGazette.com. We've been covering a lot of the developments of the early Eric Adams administration here as the new mayor has taken office and also what's happening with the new class of city council members and the new city council speaker, Adrian Adams. And we are, of course, covering the developments at the state level and leading into this conversation with State Senator Kruger, Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, a Democrat has taken over last year, about midway through the year, and is now into her first budget and legislative session as governor of New York. And she has released her state of the state policy agenda and her executive budget. And no better person to join us to discuss that budget released just yesterday, the day before we're talking here on Wednesday, January 19th, than State Senator Kruger, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee, as I mentioned. And if you've missed any recent episodes of the show here, Max Politics, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. I've had a lot of really good recent conversations with a variety of uh, guests who deal with city and state issues, including one of Senator Kruger's colleagues, State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens, talking about a wide variety of of her priorities and issues at the state level as well, uh, and a number of other great guests. I won't go into the full list now, but you can find those wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. All right, State Senator Kruger, thanks for joining me. Um, let's jump right in on the governor's executive budget, a whopping uh, $216 billion spending plan. We've got a write-up at Gotham Gazette for folks that want to dig into the details. But what are your sort of initial reactions to what you heard the governor outline and how are you thinking about the next steps here as the legislature starts to, you know, really dig in? Great. Well, first off, thank you for inviting me on. You know, you're right. $216 billion. It's a pretty large sum of money. And the devil's in the details. So yesterday the governor gave her budget briefing. And it was pretty brief. I think it was 13 minutes. I personally give awards for politicians who do things in short speeches, but it left now the legislature and the public to really dig through those budget bills, which only came out, I think, around five o'clock last night and look for the details of what we're talking about. Now, my job is a little different than most legislators as the finance chair. My job is not to actually start off with my own positions and be a lobbyist for my own positions. Although I think I always make myself clear in the end, but to actually bring my colleagues together, let them develop a consensus plan 
together um, for the Senate Democrats. We do this through consensus. It ultimately is our one house budget. Um, run the budget hearings so that people all over the state of New York have an opportunity to weigh in with their priorities and factor those into where do they line up with what the governor's proposed um, and then have to deal with some of the really hard questions. Are these sustainable changes? A lot of the money that we are flush with right now is federal money that has specific mandates on how it can be spent versus just as we wish. It has specific time frames. It's what we call one-time money, not continuing. So you can't start a whole new program and guarantee people that it will keep going if you're going to use the federal money because that's going to end. Um, but we're also flush with tax revenue. And it's a bit surprising, but both our personal income tax and our sales tax revenues have been much higher than projected. And it's an interesting question, will this continue or not? Um, and we're not sure. And it reflects a confusion, I think, in our economy. I, I said, I think, to someone last night, it's like the tale of two economies in New York. Some people are doing extremely well. Some people's businesses are doing extremely well, reflecting the very large PIT, personal income tax payments we're seeing. And many are still suffering enormously from the impact of the pandemic, from loss of employment, from loss of their businesses. And so it's just sort of a weird storyline also. But yeah. Kathy Hochul's projecting no um, hole in our budget for multiple years out. She's talking about being able to put money into an emergency reserve fund and no expectation of a negative impact in our budget projections, I think for at least three years. I've been here 20 years, as we just said. I've never seen a budget like this. Right. So it is absolutely a good news budget to deal with. And despite that, I can guarantee you, many of my colleagues will tell you there are massive goals that they have for government that are not dealt with in this budget or are not dealt with completely mm -hmm. in this budget. Um, I think the universal child care discussion is one of them. Um, the home health care crisis is another. Um, the inadequacy of healthcare workers, as we're learning during this pandemic, um, you know, but and yet we're seeing the colas, the cost of living adjustments for workers in many areas of the state that have been begging just for basic colas for years, um, and we're seeing real commitments to healthcare reforms and expansion of healthcare workers. And there's infrastructure money for more things than I can possibly keep track of today, mm -hmm. but we'll get my arms around. So it's a, you know, it's an exciting opportunity, but it doesn't mean the legislature is going to agree with the governor on everything or even agree amongst ourselves. That's what makes horse racing, as they say. <laughs>
And I'll add to your list, uh, speaking of my recent conversation with your colleague, State Senator Ramos from Queens, you know, she's she wants to fight for a replenishment of the excluded workers fund that was not, you know, in the governor's plan. Um, you know, there's questions about how the two billion dollars that the governor wants to decide with the legislature uh, about how to spend in pandemic relief. You know, that could go a number of ways, including to those, uh, quote unquote, excluded workers, typically undocumented folks who didn't qualify for federal aid. So uh, a, a number of issues. And then, like you said, a lot of it is about degree. So it'll be interesting to see where those where those conversations go. Um, understanding what you said about, you know, it's your job to, um, you know, in some ways sort of referee a lot of the uh, of the upcoming discussion and analysis um, and not jump in with a lot of your own sort of personal or, or district, you know, needs and discussions, although, as you said, you do typically make yourself your, your thoughts known. Um, was there anything that sort of jumped out that you know to you or your colleagues that were either concerning a surprise, any specifics that were particularly, you know, sort of raised a few flags or got people, you know, sort of buzzing behind the scenes a little bit from what the governor announced in her budget uh, yesterday? I actually think no, mostly what she talked about, we had already heard through the state of the state. It was a fairly mm -hmm. parallel set of proposals. Um, and most people are just just starting to dig in. I won't, since we're New York City residents, I will mention there is one change with tax policy for Airbnb type mm -hmm. short term rentals. It's a proposal that Governor Cuomo had attempted a year ago and the legislature pushed, pushed back. And I am hoping that we will push back on this as well, um, because I actually think it's a violation of the intent of tax policy and could in some ways violate the laws that New York City has already put on the books in dealing with short-term rentals and its impact on long-term affordable housing for people who actually want to live in the city of New York. Um, so that's just one thing I will mention quickly that I was mm -hmm. surprised to see and, and hope will disappear or, or rather <laughs> change. I haven't looked at that closely, but I will. But but the gist is that the governor wants to add an additional tax, which I'm almost uh, speechless here that the legislature would be against some additional fees or taxes. Uh, but um, but the but your point is that it, it in some ways would encourage more uh, use of uh, these platforms or. You know, forgive me, I'm not quite certain. What, no, that's what, okay. What and it's, it's pretty technical, Ben, but it's sort of yeah. this this model has been pitched by companies like Airbnb in various parts of the country or the world. So it's we'll collect the tax, but and we'll submit it, but we won't tell you what what buildings this are being taxed ah, okay. or how much they actually received. So it's bizarre because it's saying we'll decide how much to give you. There'll be no evidence to back it up one way or the other. And you won't know um, who's actually paying this tax, which is a serious problem since, as we know, many of these models are illegal, particularly in New York City, under New York City law. And so you'll be perhaps paying a tax on an illegal activity without the government ever having any of the information that they would draw from anyone else who's filing a tax return. And we won't know whether it's an accurate tax return. 
um, because it's just take our word for it. So it's just a model that flunks the smell test, so to speak, even if you do want to go down the road of taxing like hotels, short-term rentals. Hotels actually have to say, my hotel address is X. There were this many people who stayed with me and we're submitting the following taxes. That should be the parallel model if you choose to attempt to tax short-term rental arrangements. And there are many communities that are concerned. Even smaller upstate resort-type towns have pointed out there are so many people going into short-term rentals, there's no actual rentals for people who need to live in the town. Mm-hmm. And that's a serious dilemma um, for local governments you know, in all directions. Again, affordable housing shortages are not new news to us. Um, Got it. And then so- that's some of the other question. We're really excited that she's talking 10,000 supportive housing units mm. in the next five years and 100,000 more afford- affordable housing st- you know, starts or renovation- renovations. Mm. We have to see how that's going to translate. Governor Cuomo had also made that commitment, but never actually delivered on it. So I think the legislature is very attuned to wanting to make sure that money that is committed is actually spent as committed because that's another reason we seem to have so much extra money this year. It turns out while we put money into budgets year after year, Governor Cuomo didn't choose to spend the money. Um, So he was sitting on lots and lots of money that never got released and never was used for what it was intended for. So I think now the question is also, well, what didn't get spent and should we make good on those commitments? Or are we starting again as if this was just found free money? Um, And I think that's an important public policy question also. I want to ask you a little bit more about the uh, budget hearings that you're going to be uh, co-chairing soon, uh, starting soon. But before that, um, one specific uh, policy proposal in the governor's state of the state that I think, you know, really applies to your uh, Manhattan district that I wanted to ask you about was this idea of um, doing away with the residential floor area ratio limit in New York City, um, which uh, to, to, for, to make a, a long story short, is the idea that would allow for uh, denser residential development and uh, and basically, in you know, in, in districts like yours and in lots of parts of Manhattan, um, where a lot of development has has sort of hit this uh, maximum ratio would no longer be limited by it. What do you what do you think about uh, that proposal? So the previous versions of this and I did not see the language yet, so I don't know what this language is. The previous attempts by the state, I fought very hard. Not because I don't believe in increasing um, heights and density neighborhood by neighborhood based on um, objective analysis. But when you talk about my sections of Manhattan, frankly, we're dealing without this change with so many super talls, we can't even keep track of them at the moment, and a population density 
that is making it difficult for people to walk down the sidewalks in certain neighborhoods, um, not to mention the traffic congestion problems we are suffering from. So it's one thing to talk about changing your FAR and zoning rules so that communities that have six story limits go to 12 and 15 and 20 with community participation and discussion. And it's another thing to talk about needing more FAR to go even taller than buildings that are taller than the Empire State Building, which seem to pop up like bunny rabbits um, in, in Manhattan at this point. So I would be very concerned about over further overproduction of ridiculously tall buildings in already the most densely populated areas of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, okay, we'll have to dig into the details there as well. Um, if there was, if there were some safeguards uh, on that, uh, or or some different uh, different calculations of the limits, it sounds like something you may may be willing to uh, support. And again, I am not opposed to more density planned appropriately in various parts of the city of New York. But when people continue to talk about Manhattan as the obvious place, south of 96th Street, you just sort of want to go, have you been there like recently at all? Because what are you talking about? You know, we are, again, so densely populated that we have no green space. We have shadows that are impacting um, almost every block as far as sunlight. Um, we literally don't have places for people to move around or to move any kind of vehicle, even if you don't think they should be in any kind of vehicle. The vehicles seem to believe they need to be there and there's no place for them. Um, the dangers of just attempting to cross the streets in my district are a very real issue um, because of the density of population and all kinds of vehicles. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it simply cannot give developers carte blanche because they see it as the most profit generating areas of the city of New York. That's not urban planning. That's saying we're handing it over to real estate to make the most money without giving a damn what the impact is on the future of the city and the people who live there. I want to move on to other things, but I, you know, it doesn't, as far as I can tell, that's not necessarily, or at least it's not the stated motivation of the governor in, in proposing this and, and nor is it really the, the stated motivation of others who, who have, uh, you know, who want to see more housing development with, you know, with affordable housing, of course, as part of it. In well, I'm a big supporter of affordable housing, so I'm certainly not arguing on a zoning matter for affordable housing. The irony, of course, is none of these super talls that have come into Manhattan already have affordable housing. There was no affordable housing part of those deals um, because frankly, the real estate cost is so high in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, that 
increasing FAR is not going to get you affordable housing um, in this area of Manhattan. So with, people with the, say one thing, but then they mm -hmm. propose something that has nothing to do with it. Well, again, devil, devil in the details, I, I do think with the mandatory inclusionary housing program that's in place, um, you know, that that's meant to obviously yeah, require. Yeah, that unfortunately has lost us more affordable housing in my district than gained us because they build the mandatory after tearing down whole buildings of rent regulated apartments and you end up with fewer units at higher prices than what you had before. So mandatory inclusionary zoning has been a disaster in Manhattan south of 96th Street, not increase the number of affordable units at all. Wow. All right. A lot, a lot more to discuss there. Another time, I think we'll have to have a whole discussion about, <laughs> about housing and planning uh, with you. I know housing has been a, a focus area for you uh, for, for a very long time. So um, on, on these on these budget hearings that you're going to be co-chairing, um, the, the one thing I want to ask you about those really is um, with all of this spending, and even if it was you know, a few years ago, there's still obviously, you know, nearly $200 billion in spending uh, previously, and now, you know, well over $200 billion uh, planned here by the governor. Um, is there a way to uh, adjust some of the discussion at these hearings about sort of proving the effectiveness of the spending? You know, it seems like uh, some of this discussion seems to be hitting a little bit of a boiling point. I know, you know, in, in city government, uh, questions around this about, you know, God, it, we just, you know, keep spending more and more money, but the outcomes are not necessarily getting that much better. Um, is there a way for these hearings to center uh, more of, of sort of forcing uh, some of the agency heads or the representatives, you know, of the gubernatorial administration or others to sort of prove more that the, the money that's being spent on programs and services and aid and such is, is, is more effectively uh, doing what it's supposed to be doing? I think that you're asking the exact right questions. I'm not sure that the hearings per se get us there because mm -hmm. we need to actually have laws and rule requirements that there is both transparency and evaluation in the spending that the state does. Interestingly, on last Friday, I chaired a different kind of hearing, not yes. a budget hearing, but a hearing Just on economic development programs where we had- You made my segue for me. Okay, <laughs> that was, well, we had That's our next question, go ahead. Of testifiers. <laughs> basically testifying to the fact that New York State spends, depending on how you count it, up to 10 billion a year in economic development activities, tax exemptions, credits, grants, um, without anyone ever knowing what the impact of any of these specific programs or deals is and that we need to pass a package of laws requiring full transparency for these programs and deals and an actual set of standards for evaluation because even the way people count them comes out in a multiple different ways. And it was a great hearing and it's on the computer for anyone who wants to watch it or read the testimony but I think you and I are talking exactly the same things, that we should have 
much better standards for evaluating what the state's getting for its money, whether it's through economic development or through any other spending. Mm -hmm. And um, is there appetite for passing such laws? I mean, you know, this this seems like the type of thing that winds up with, uh, you know, a relatively you know, small number of legislators like yourself who, who, you know, really care about proving effectiveness of programs, but many who are happy if, you know, government is spending more because that means more things happening in their districts. And, you know, let's not sort of uh, look too closely or overturn the apple cart. Is, is there going to be appetite, you think, for anything like that in, in reality here? I have to say the the response I got from our Friday hearing from so many senators was that, yes, there absolutely is an appetite. And I think what people need to understand, we have a brand new governor, but we also have a radically changing and quickly changing legislature, both houses. Um, you know, I'm, the, I'm a leftover of the old guard with my 20 years in the Senate, um, enormous number of new progressive hungry legislators who don't like the way things have been going. That's why they ran for office. That's why I ran for office. It's just taking me longer than I was hoping um, to get things done and want desperately to see change. So I do think there is um, appetite for this. And again, under the disgraced Andrew Cuomo, you know, bullying harasser that he is, the legislature not only didn't accomplish these goals, but we went backwards. And he was, you know, well, we know he was making secret deals that ended up in court as illegal um, through subsetting corporations under somehow the SUNY board as doing side deals, the Buffalo Billion, which didn't turn out to really be a real billion dollars for the right things um, or for the future of the city and people of Buffalo. Um, so I think we learned a lot of lessons from the Cuomo years. And I know that I'm very committed to make sure that the legislature does not make the mistakes of the past and does not fold on these issues. They're crucial. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um one of the issues that you've been uh, somewhat related, uh, focused on, is replacing the state ethics uh, entity watchdog, uh, which you know has been fairly toothless over over the years. The Joint Commission on Public Elf Ethics. The governor has now put forward her own proposal on uh, Jacob reform. What do you make of her plan? What do you see as the future here? And um, you know give us again a, a frank you know, forecast of whether you think anything actually gets done here in the next few months. Well, here I'm delighted with what the governor did. Um, she basically had her, her key staff meet with legislators who'd been working on this issue, myself, um, and with advocates and lawyers who'd been working on this issue, the same ones that I've been working with for years. Um, I still believe that ultimately we need a constitutional amendment um, to come up with a model that's, that really sort of passes the complete independence and can't be rolled over the next day storyline. But she basically said, all right, a constitutional amendment takes multiple years. 
what can we get done immediately? And she, I believe with her proposal, pretty much hit on every one of the major concerns with the current J-COPE and designs a new model that passes the smell test, not just of myself, but of lawyers and advocates who have been trying to get J-COPE thrown out and started again from scratch for years now. So I'm excited about the proposal she made. Is it perfect? No. Are there issues of how do you truly find people who are completely independent of the executive and the legislature to frankly sit in judgment over us if we are accused of breaking the laws? Um, And I think we pretty much concluded since we can't go find people from another planet and assign them to do this, that it's not a perfect model, but I believe the way it would work is the deans of the state's 15 law schools would be making the nominations um, of the J. Cope um, board representatives that would be brought down to five. And so that there would not be decisions made by the legislative leaders or the governor as to who is in charge of J-COPE and that they would then do their own hiring, which was also a huge issue, of course, because the governor kept seeming to be able to hire the staff for J-COPE, having already appointed the majority of the people on the board. And so the, you know, the game was fixed right. somehow, from the start. Somehow the Jacob executive director was always someone with recent experience in the, in the governor's uh, inner circle. Um, exactly. So I give Governor Hochul very high points hmm. on her yeah. commitment to try to get this done correctly and quickly. I believe it's, um, it's, it would be the, the deans of the law schools or their designees. So it could potentially Correct. be them, but... As Correct. you get at, maybe they would probably prefer to choose somebody else. Um, very, very challenging uh, work there, obviously. Uh, so uh, a couple last things in our, in our final few minutes here, State Senator Liz Kruger. And again, thank you for the time. Um, the issue of um, reforming the New York City Board of Elections, another uh, issue close to your uh, agenda. Why don't your, I ever uh, pick easy things to yeah, do that? You, you really have uh, <laughs> quite a portfolio. So uh, State Senator Myrie, uh, your colleague from Brooklyn, uh, has released a report after holding a bunch of hearings. He chairs the Senate's Elections Committee. Um, Interestingly, you know, he and others came away from the hearings that he held with some concerns about doing sort of a sweeping statewide change to how local boards of elections are made up because in places outside New York City, there was a lot of sort of positive feedback that about the current system, about balancing, you know, what turns out to be Democratic and Republican appointees and, you know, and so forth. And there's less uh, dysfunction, apparently, in many other places than New York City. What's the path forward here um, on New York City Board of Elections reform? And again, is this another one that you foresee any, any action actually happening here this year? So. 
you're absolutely right. I went to quite a few of the hearings and um, Senator Myrie's been doing an extraordinary job committed to improving um, voter rights and election process. And so I set out to develop a bill specific to New York City's Board of Election, not a statewide bill, because I recognize and recognize even more now after sitting through hearings that it is different in different places. I mean, there are counties, you know, that have more cattle than voters and do not have a parallel storyline to New York City's. So my bill is actually being amended as we speak. I'm not sure the newest version is in, um, but it has been in coordination with Senator Myrie, who is in support of our trying to accomplish this for the city of New York, which so desperately needs reform and modernization of how we run our elections. I don't know how successful we will be with this because there are many political issues tied into obviously um, who controls the board of elections. But again, we've been working with both the state board of election for guidance, uh, many election lawyers, uh, many people familiar with the problems that the city has had um, forever with their elections. And I think that We've come up with a good model. Neely Rosek carries the bill in the assembly. I carry the bill in the Senate. Um, it was not one of those, you could just put it on an agenda and get it passed in your first couple of days. People need to look hard at it. It changes. I think we are going down to two commissioners from 10, um, one Democrat, one Republican. There are, are some constitutional things we can't touch. Um, unless we change the constitution, which is a much more complicated storyline. But again, I think we have come up with a bill that passes the smell tests and the constitutional tests and would absolutely result in a modern professionalized New York City Board of Election. And I know that it is a commitment of many in city government to want these to get these changes done. And it's not a discussion I have had with the executive yet. Mm -hmm. So I don't know her position. Interesting. And and uh, I think I've said this to you before, and, and maybe you have a, a similar answer, but uh, the executive is important here, obviously, but it seems like when it comes to Board of Elections reform, Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie is probably the most important person to get on board here. He comes out of the Democratic uh, party apparatus as uh, in the Bronx uh, has much closer sort of establishment ties uh, to the way that things have been run at the Board of Elections and and all of the intricacies there. Let's say um, is is he you know do you have any sense? I know this is you know the other house, but do you have any sense as to whether there could be some movement in the assembly on on this issue? Because that seems to me at least like the biggest barrier. So. After 20 years of saying it, I'll say it again. I have enough trouble <laughs> figuring out the New York State Senate on a daily basis. I don't choose to try to guess about the assembly. Um, I have a terrific co-sponsor, Neely Rosick, and I encourage you to ask her or Will assembly do. members where they think they are. Um, I have no crystal ball on where their leadership is on this issue. All right. 
Last question. Um, you were one of the architects behind legalizing uh, adult use of marijuana in New York. The process uh, of implementation has gone quite slowly, mostly under the former governor, Cuomo. Um, any sense right now on um, when, you know, when it looks like realistically that industry will be up and running and any, any sort of flags, good, bad, or otherwise that you want to raise right now as you enter this, you know, the rest of this session and anything, you know, sort of on your radar in terms of that implementation? Great. So, yes, we finally got a bill passed after seven years of negotiations under Andrew Cuomo. It's a great bill. And it's not my, my, me selfishly saying that. It was worked on with half the world, but it's other states coming and saying, oh my God, that's what we should have done. Oh, we didn't do that. We learned from other states' mistakes. And I really do think we passed the model bill in New York State. Then disgraced Governor Cuomo refused to allow the hiring of any staff to get this up and running so that we were put behind months where we should have been. Then Governor Hochul came in and literally by the second week she was the governor, even though she had a plate so full, I don't even know how she was walking into all this. She actually called me up and said, I know this is critical, what do we need to do? And I know you know the people who should be running this. So tell me what you think we should be doing. And I was so shocked that a governor would call and say that. Like, what do you think we should do to get your bill rolling? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it's unheard of in the Cuomo administration. And I made recommendations on who they should hire um, because I knew the people who I'd worked with who were going to be able to do the job. Um, and they frankly put together a dream team. That's what I call them over there in the Office of Cannabis Management. And they've been building on the team. In fact, now I'm irritated because they stole a number of the best state Senate staffers to help them get things done. But we will forgive them mm -hmm. uh, because they are charging ahead. They are working on building an agency from scratch, drafting very complex regulations. Because this bill, remember, it's not just adult recreational. It's adult recreational plus expungement of criminal records, plus massive changes and expansion of our medical marijuana program, plus massive changes and expansion of our hemp CBD growing industries in New York, which are also a cannabis products. So they've got a giant task. They're charging ahead with drafting regulations that then have to go through by law a draft comment period from the public, then a finalization of, regulation, of regulations. Then they can start to put licenses up for auction and, and bidding. Um, and so I think that they are flying ahead. They put together an excellent board who's been meeting regularly in public. People can watch the board meetings. Um, they're starting very soon um, public presentations online to let people know what's going on and what they can expect and how they can be preparing if they're interested in going into many different areas of business within cannabis. Um, and they're also pointing out some people are jumping the gun and are opening illegal stores and they're going to be coming after them because there are stores in various places that claim that they are selling legal cannabis. 
Um, no, they can't be selling legal cannabis yet in New York State because nobody has a license to do so. Mm -hmm. So the activity is still illegal for selling, but it's not illegal if you have it and use it. And of course, you know, let's not fool ourselves, any of us. Cannabis was here pretty much everywhere long before we got a bill passed. So of course there's quote unquote, the illegal market continuing. Our goal is to get our legal market up and running as fast as we can. And to be quite blunt, try to put the illegal market out of business because we want to make sure the products you buy in New York are safe and are labeled exactly what they are. We want to make sure we move the cartel scary people out of cannabis. We want to make sure you have to be 21 to buy it because it's not for under 21 years old. Um, we want to make sure there's correct tracking of the business models to have success, particularly in communities where so much harm was done by the drug wars for so long. So the, the legislation requires 50% of the licenses go to communities that felt the brunt of the criminal justice wars, and that is primarily black and brown communities. So we have a big agenda for this agency, and we've got great people rolling forward, and I'm really excited about it. And, uh, and what's the target date for the first uh, legal sales in New York? So I got in trouble by saying, <laughs> Maybe the end of 22 and they like, we're like, no, early 23. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. We, we, we could talk so much more about that. And I want to another time, including, you know, all the localities that, you know, seem to be opting out of, of allowing sales and so and you forth. Know what? It's totally fine. They mm -hmm. can opt out of sales. It's still legal for people to bring it home right. and use it any way that it's legal anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Those localities will simply be giving up having stores with jobs for people and being able to share in sales tax revenue. But that's absolutely their right. right. And people say, are you sorry you put that option into the bill? I am not. If it's not right for your community, I'm not telling you you have to have retail sales or you have to have the equivalent of marijuana bars, mm. you know, because every community is different. Right, and they can always change their minds once they, they see what's happening. They can always change their right? mind later. That's right. All right, State Senator Liz Kruger, as always, thanks for the time and the uh, and the discussion, and we'll be catching up more as the session unfolds. Thank you for having me, Ben. Thanks. Thanks.